time to start. Um, so, good afternoon and welcome everyone to today's CG seminar series on the global and international higher education. Uh, I'm Xin Xu from the CG Center and from the Oxford Education Department. It is my great honor and pleasure to chair the session today. As you may know, this is the second seminar in our CG seminar series on the global and international higher education. Um, so last week at UCL, we had two amazing speakers, Dr. Maya Chan-Stout-Sleep and uh, Professor Tristan McGowan, and they talked about the international development in global higher education. And to continue with the meaningful discussion here, today we have two equally amazing speakers, Professor Simon Marginson, the director of the CG Center from the Department of Education here in Oxford, and Dr. David Muse, also from our department, and the director of the ESRC, um, uh, ESRC Grant Union Doctoral Training Partnership. Um, so each presentation will be about 30 to 40 minutes long, and we will take one to two questions after each session, and then we'll have a Q&A session at the end of the two presentations. So now I'll hand it over to Simon, and please join me in welcoming our first speaker today. Colleagues, it's an honour um, and pleasure to speak about a topic which is so close to my heart as an academic and as a person. Uh, I think my first sense of um, the importance of the, the world as opposed, and the global as it's distinct from the nation or the locality came when, it, when I was at, um, early in secondary school and I had an argument with someone that, who was a friend of mine or seemed to be a friend of mine I think, um, at the time about whether the world would be better off as one country or many countries, and I thought one country was a good idea. Maybe I inherited this sensibility from my parents who were concerned about the effects of nationalism after World War II, but um, were, I think, Australian nationalists themselves. Um, so I always had this sense that you could think about the world in more than one way. Uh, you could think about it in terms of national identity and national loyalty, or you could think about it in terms of a single integrated whole. Um, and that's really what I want to talk about, that global sensibility. These are the things which I plan to cover in this brief presentation of this mighty issue. Um, and I'm conscious of the inadequacy of my presentation and the inadequate time I've spent on it, but let me say that it reflects quite a long process of thinking and reflection over a period of time. So. I will pass into my, what you might call my positive case, my own concern, my own agenda, my own theorisation, um, before passing to some of the discussion and debate around these issues in the second part of the presentation. Now, I could say that imagining the global really begins with the Greeks and with uh, the Indian and Iranian um, Persian philosophy in the period after um, the fall of Rome, but uh, you, you, where at that time... It was scientifically possible to identify um, the, the Earth as round and to, and to identify its size. And, and in fact, in the 5th century AD, an Indian mathematician became, got within 0.2% of estimating the correct size of the Earth. Um, so this sensibility was in the background of intellectual discussion and debate for quite a long time, but it wasn't until the European um, uh, guns and Bible empires began to unfold across the world beginning with the exploration of Magellan in the 16th century, that you see, um, if you like, empirical proof that the world is round. And at that stage, 
the notion of the round world pops into consciousness amongst educated people, government circles and merchants, but also um, servants and scholars. And so Shakespeare said it was called the globe because the globe was an icon at that stage. And that was only you know, not very long after Magellan and, and Francis Drake had done their circumnavigations. So it enters consciousness, but it's still a subordinate theme. And uh, in some respects, we don't really see the change until the space race and until the great change occurs when the, when, when the Earth can be seen from space as an integrated ball in, this, in, in, in um, green and blue and white floating in the ether as a whole thing. And that's, that begins with Yuri Gagarin in 1961. So he's the first person who has this vision, this, this, this perception. And he was fairly close to the Earth's surface, so he saw... A, he saw a rounded horizon. Uh, he didn't see the, the view of the Earth from the Moon that, that the astronauts would see later. But he was, he was already aware of the Earth as a single integrated um, whole and seeing it from outside. And I love this quote from um, Alexander Alexandrov um, from the 1983 mission where he not only talks about how he saw the Earth as a single integrated whole but also that it changed his view um, of himself uh, and of nation. And here you see the birth of the ecological consciousness and the sentimentality that's attached to it. It's gendered character, for example, uh, the sense that the earth is our mother. Uh, and it's something you see in popular culture a lot in the 1970s, 1980s, coming through. You see it in popular songs, references to the earth turning in space, appears in an Elvis Presley song and appears in While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is a late Beatles song. You know, you see this, this sort of notion coming through. Um, and, and it's never really left us ever since. So we now have this dimension, this spatiality in our minds as one way of thinking about humanity and about the natural world. So this is how I approach it. I approach it as a process of geospatial definition. I try to look at global and international not in the terms that Jane Knight uses with the kind of normative notion about action and process and, and what people in education ought to be doing, but in terms of a, of a neutral description which can then be attached to any number of normative projects, of course, like all such neutral descriptions. So my starting point is the assumption that to observe the world clearly and... To have a sound basis for interpretation, we need to use these kinds of simple geospatial descriptors that are rooted not in purpose, purposive agendas but in the appropriation of materiality. That's the starting point. Before we seek to persuade and convince in relation to one or another concept of globalisation or internationalisation, we need to understand and explain. The use of non-normative definitions renders educational studies consistent with other social sciences when it talks about the international and the global, but it's sharply at variance with much of the scholarship in our field. I'm not arguing against the use of normative arguments per se, of course, but only against the preempting of accurate information and understanding and observation by normative agendas. Um, inevitably, a neutral descriptive terminology um, will be used for different normative purposes. Um, but I do think that it's important to start this way because it means we're sharing the same intellectual space as other social sciences rather than devising a particular language specific just to education.
Sorry, I'm jumping forward too far. As I see it, the global has three principal spatialities. Um, the book by Conrad I recommend, it's a nice succinct statement about the global perspective on history, which applies quite well to contemporary social science as well. Um, it provides a good introduction to the notion of global system and the notion of cross-border connection, which of course has been the big theme in history. Um, the past of uh, trading connections and religious connections and cultural and linguistic connections and migration and so on as kind of core themes in the global aspect of the study of history. So the global is about world-spanning linkages and relationships. It's about um, things like the global research system or it's about global trans air transport system which is managed on a coordinated basis or it's about things like the ecology, global ecology. It's not the world and every element in it. It's not a container for, for the national, the local, and every sensibility and every kind of activity and agency. Um, it refers only to those elements which pertain to the worldwide or planetary level um, and constitute that level of, of action. Um, now global cities uh, are an example of a global system. They are partly disembedded from the nation-states through their global relations. Uh, they're globally networked. The global system of student mobility in higher education, which is, which is vectored by protocols and licensing and accreditation and recognition of different kinds, is another example. Cross-border connections and connectedness in trade, people, mobility, knowledge and ideas other spatiality most often associated with the global and the focus of much of the largest literature. Connections assume the division of the world into parts that can be connected, but the presumption is that unlike the term international, in which connections are made without any necessary changes to each nation, cross-border global connections both create a relational entity which is larger than any individual nation and also are potentially transforming of the persons, institutions and territories that are thereby connected. So there's some sense of, of the transformation of subjects. Global diffusion of ideas, forms of organisation, models and so on refers to the spread of common practices across the world. Examples include the practices of the German university and then the American research university and the way that ra those radiated to other countries in the second half of the 19th and then the 20th centuries, and the, also the global research university, the world-class university notion, and the way that's radiated through global rankings and other mechanisms in the 21st century. Now, this worldwide process of diffusion is discussed by world society theory, which is itself another body of thought which is spread in the same manner, diffused quite broadly. Um, the global diffusion entails more than a process of institutional imitation or the paralleling of systems as that theory imagines. In contrast with world society theory, I would emphasise that it always involves a process of localisation as global models become adapted and altered in each specific national context. And this brings the understanding of global diffusion closer to orthodox comparative education. Note also that um, global diffusion, as in the old study of comparative education, implies the existence of a global centre, or possibly more than one centre, which is the origin of the global model which is being diffused, the ideas, uh, and, and, it, and also perhaps is the driver, at least of the initial part 
of the process of diffusion. So unlike global system or global connection, which in themselves have no necessary implication for power relations, global diffusion implies a global hierarchy of some kind. But unlike the older study of comparative education, the focus on global diffusion can, and I would argue should, identify and problematise the source of that diffusion when it is colonial or otherwise hegemonic. Now, convergence and integration at world level is not a single process, but is uneven by social sector and over time and by place. Globalisation has economic, communicative, cultural, scientific, political and ecological modes, and they're not necessarily congruent. They're not necessarily happening simultaneously. They're not even necessarily supporting each other. Some often they do. Globalisation may advance in one sector, such as communications or science, or religion, while moving backwards in another, such as governance and politics, which seems to be happening now. It can be high capitalist, it, as, it, as it often was in the 1990s and 2000s. It can be social democratic, as it was under the Second International, or it can be associated with worldwide organising amongst Indigenous peoples. There are many kinds of political globalisation as well as other forms of globalisation. Between the mid-1980s and the 2008 recession, economic globalisation was associated with a liberalisation of trade and financial flows, growth in trade and foreign direct investment as proportions of GDP, and the growing rate, role of multinationals, of global supply chains and offshoring of production um, to cheap labour countries. And these looked like unstoppable movements, didn't they, at the time? And this kind of globalisation, economic globalisation, neoliberal globalisation, some would call it, was associated with growth in the cohort of middle-income countries, a lifting of many of them, um, greater economic equality between countries on the world scale, and also, in, in about two-thirds of the world's countries, a pronounced increase in income inequality uh, at a national level, because capitalist accumulation was less constrained by states and regulation and policy. No doubt the formation of world markets was also one of the drivers of the spread of global products and the rapid diffusion of the internet. But cultural and communicative globalisation served more purposes than just capital accumulation. And technological driver, change was a driver as well as a condition of globalisation. As Manuel Castells first pointed out clearly two decades ago in his magisterial work on the rise of the network society. Um, expanding networks, said Castells, have an autonomous logic. Both economic and cultural globalisation underpin the evolution of global systems and global connectedness in higher education and research science and heralded the great transformation of higher education at world level from 1990 onwards. But for the last 10 years ago, it's been, or so, it's been different. We've been in a new era. Cross-border financial flows have reduced. Global supply chains and the offshoring of production are now contracting. Trade as a share of global GDP and the economic role of multinationals seems to have plateaued. At the same time, global communications, global science and collaborative international publications have all continued to grow vigorously, as does cooperation between universities across borders. From time to time, there has been a pushback against growing international student flows. But until recently, 
there is no sense of a broad existential threat to this continual process of globalisation in our sector. This might be changing, though, given the populist challenge and the intensification of security agendas, especially those flowing from the new Cold War between the United States and China. I said before that the global is not the world, it's not an every element in it. It's not a universal container. The nation as a bounded entity is not subsumed in the global. This raises the question of the relationship between the national and the global. Now, the Glonacle paper, 2002, proud that we don't have to take back a single word of it, it's proved to be quite useful, um, was written as a reaction then to the global-local formulation in the the rhetoric about globalisation, which was then prevailing, uh, with its implication that the role of the nation-state was going to disappear. We felt, as education policy people, we felt that was clearly not so, that the nation remained a central player in higher education as a constructor of the modern higher education system, as the regulator, as the primary funder in most countries, and so on. The nation could not be dealt out of the equation through conceptual means. Um, It was obvious to us that we had to develop an analytical framework which took into account the continuing role of the nation in higher education, but also acknowledged the impact of globalisation and, 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 the, and the third dimension of the local. And so we developed this idea that um, the distinctive insight of the paper, I guess, that really, quite simple, the university is simultaneously active now as a global players, as national players, as local players, and that the obligation of exec- for executive leaders was that they should be able to take into account all three dimensions of activity. A very effective executive leader would ensure that their local and national activity helped their global activity, that their global activity would support their national position and would strengthen their local position and so on. Um, and, and that turned out to be prophetic as well, I think, in that the, the tensions between them have now become more apparent and you need quite clever footwork to manage to bring the, all three dimensions of activity into synergy and become effective across all three spheres so they reinforce each other rather than undermining each other. So agents in higher education, we thought, were active in all three spheres, global, national and local. And by agents, we understood quite a broad spectrum um, from the nation to the institution to discipline-orientated academics to the students themselves. Research universities mostly have greater freedom of operation in in global relations when compared with national and local relationships, which are more bound up in regulation, policy and funding regimes. This is because there's no global state and the global higher education space functions as both a global market and a global civil society. And the relationship between those two, of course, is variable and sometimes in tension. Rankings strengthen elite research universities as global players, conferring on them a global identity and greater independence vis-à-vis their national governments, partly disembedding them from the nation. However, institutions vary in the character of their global strategies and the degree to which global practices are important to them. And we have some good research on this recently. Two papers published by Jonathan Friedman in 2018, I assume out of a doctoral project, 
uh, provided insight into the differences in global strategies between various types of institution in the UK. The, the new elite university pursued a more aggressive and more self-transforming global agenda than the old elite university that simply assumed that it was the centre of the world and that everyone from across the world would continue to come to it on its terms without it having to change in any way. No prizes for guessing who old elite university might have been. There might be more than one possibility there, but there wouldn't be more than two, I suspect. Um, uh, new elite university, I suspect, also is fairly easy to identify and not that far from Oxford. Um, I'm sure there are people here who could have already thought who it might be. Um, a second paper by Friedman, though, was interesting. Um, this was based on interviews in the elite subsector only in the UK and the US. And uh, he focused on the respective claims of global activity and networking on one hand and nationally defined purposes and agendas on the other. And Friedman found that national identity uh, was not only enduring but arguably more fundamental than global engagement. And the and national identity was the lens through which these research universities undertook their global activities. So if push comes to shove, in the last analysis, you know what will still be standing. It'll be their national identity and location. won't be their global activity. If they have to give that up, they will. Increasingly, with a pushback against global connectedness in the United States and much of Europe, including Russia, though, interestingly, this has not been so apparent in East Asia, we see the potential for tension between the different items on the GLONACL menu, the global, national and locally defined missions of institutions. This has shown itself not only in international student policy and regulation in the UK and the United States, Netherlands, Denmark recently, but in the tensions around Brexit faced by Remain supporting universities in the UK that sit within leave voting communities. So given that um, the nation and the local are closer at hand than the global, and given that when governments and national corporations and local donors press the button, the university must respond, why then does global action have so much momentum still in higher education or at least in research universities? Well, I think part of the answer lies in the peculiar nature of knowledge itself. In economic terms, it's a natural public good. It flows freely, it flows everywhere. The mathematical theorem is non-rivalrous and non-excludable. It's useful to all who use it indefinitely. In its residual form of concepts and know-how, knowledge cannot be confined by intellectual property law. In science, an identifiable global system based on English language publishing and fostered by global mobility of researchers, especially doctoral students, emerged in the 1990s, sustained less by the global strategies of, of countries and universities than by cooperation on a grassroots basis between people in disciplines. And this has been re repeatedly demonstrated in the empirical research on the global network. A continuing feature of science has been the tremendous growth in the number and proportion of all published papers with authors from more than one country. This proportion, which was 2% in the early 1970s, is now at 25% and rising. But because of the conditions attached to European grant schemes, it's much higher in Europe. And in the UK, it's currently at 57%, or was it 57% of all papers, 57% of all papers 
were uh, authored with, with international collaborators in 2016. And they're even higher proportions, as you can see, in Switzerland, like 69%, many European countries, same pattern, most European countries. A large literature focuses on, on the dynamics of global networks in research and science. Materially, these networks expand rapidly as Castell's forecast a diminishing unit cost. They're relatively open and they tend to foster the entry of new countries, new disciplinary players. New entrants are not subject to gatekeeping uh, by the strongest countries and universities. They can rapidly acquire connections with anyone in the network and there's usually very few steps between one side of the network and the other. More controversially, some scholars argue that the global science system is growing in potency vis-à-vis -vis national science systems. Carolyn Wagner and colleagues find that in most but not all countries, about two-thirds of countries, cooperative networks in global science are more determining of the pattern of activity and cooperation at national level than vice versa. The global determines the national more than the national determines the global in terms of networks and the content of activity. Now, this is true of, of the... United States, which of course runs such a large global network of its own, China, which is heavily networked, Germany and much of Europe, but it's not true of the Japan and of the UK and Australia. So it varies. I mean, in the UK, it appears that the structuring of, uh, of, uh, of cooperation indicates that the national level is more determining of what happens at the, at the global than vice versa. Beautiful, I've lost page nine here. I'll see if I can find it. No, I can improvise on the basis of the slides. Um, but of course, in the global research system, everyone doesn't cooperate with everyone all of the time. You get a clumping process, and that nations tend to cooperate with nations, the researchers from other nations that speak the same language. Or you also see, in, um, in the case of Europe and other parts of the world, cooperation between a nation, national research systems and researchers in them, where those research systems are located geographically close to each other. So here you have examples of that occurring in Europe. You also have the English-speaking world cooperating at a high level. You also have the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking Latin America tending to cooperate. So, uh, you, so you get these clumping patterns. And... You also find that in the disciplines there's significant variation with the natural sciences showing higher levels of international cooperation than the applied sciences in medicine or engineering and, um, and higher than the social sciences with education being a domain which is primarily nationally ordered and that has relatively low levels of cross-border international cooperation. You, you also find, of course, that... Um, uh, the uh, world, world research system is vectored by inequalities of one kind or another. And uh, a primary one is the dominant position enjoyed by the English language countries. And here you see, for example, that the role of English extends way beyond the number of, of L1 speakers, first language English speakers, to a much larger role at L2 level, at a world level. And this is a reflection of the neo-imperial position of the imperial and neo-imperial position of the English language countries in the world in the last 200 years or so. 
So language, of course, is a primary hierarchy-forming um, uh, device. And equally, of course, resource levels are um, inconsistently distributed. I do not know why the amounts of money are blocked out, but you can see them here in, in the graph. China and US have enormous research systems in terms of resources by comparison with everyone else. And, but surprisingly, some, very, some relatively small European countries have um, uh, relatively low levels of total expenditure but a very diverse and high-quality research system in terms of the, their disciplinary reach. Another um, way in which we can think about inequality in the global research system is in the pattern of who, 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 who cites who. Um, and in this table you can see the, uh, a comparison between um, the uh, rate at which United States researchers cite others, which are the lower bars, and the rate at which others cite the United States, which is the higher bars. You know, in, for every country in the world, Americans are more, are more likely to be cited by than citing of the other country. Uh, Americans cite Americans, and they don't give anyone else the same respect at the same level. Canadians and, and, and the British do relatively well with the Americans, but beyond that, it falls away. And, um, uh, and, but, of course, most countries are focused strongly on the, uh, the large American research system. So how, then, might we characterise the global research system? I mean, is it an arms race and innovation between competing national systems? which is the vision that seems to drive national governments that they invest in research to keep up and better each other uh, through research and development, science and innovation, and they judge themselves their firepower by the number of world-class universities they have. Is that, is that actually how it really works, or is that just a kind of ideological construct? Um, is it a global market of competing world-class research universities, the vision that's, that's propagated by global rankings? Is it this great, um, great all-in all in contest between equivalent institutions across the world that are dealing directly in competition with each other rather than mediated by other forces like nation or discipline. Um, I mean, it's a longer discussion than I've got time for today, but neither of these constructs, which are the popular ones, the known ones, neither of them, understood as general frameworks, stand up to empirical scrutiny. Elements of both can be detected as it work, but um, in fact, the um, the role of the uh, the role of research is as much or more cooperative as it is competitive, giving the lie to both forms of competition as as drivers. And research is primarily bottom up rather than orchestrated by governments or by institutions, which gives the lie to the idea. Of, the, of, of, of a competition of governments as agents or a competition of universities as agents. The actual activities of researchers cut across both those ideas all of the time. Um, so then, is it a network, more horizontal and vertical? Or is it a hierarchy, more hierarchical than it is horizontal? I think that both the horizontal network and the vertical hierarchy are in play. Um, and each has an ongoing potential to modify the other. There's no final settlement between them, and it's a case-by-case, history-by-history, location-by-location problem. Nevertheless, despite inequalities and hierarchies, science is more open 
than, um, than is most so social systems more global and less determined by states and economic capital. And it's evolved towards more openness and more inclusion over time, interestingly. But I fear, however, that the new Cold War between the US and China might change that. We might see new separations, new divisions, um, the breakdown of inclusion, the breakdown of openness, at least to some degree. So these are my very short thoughts about what is global. Um, I've not followed the familiar pathways in the literature. There are three paths I haven't taken. The path of methodological nationalism, the path of the Jane Knight definition of internationalisation, which is quoted in almost every essay I ever read on internationalisation and the majority of the journal articles as well. Nor have I taken the path of centre-periphery analysis. And I'll say something briefly about each of these. Methodological nationalism is the assumption that the nation-state or national society is the natural social and political form of the modern world and the ultimate horizon of meaning. It must be said that the great majority of the papers written in higher education studies are framed by methodological nationalism directed towards often national policy frameworks as they are, including many of the papers on internationalisation and globalisation. Um, Riyad Shah Jahan and Adriana Kazar, 2013, produced a lovely article which I had the good fortune to review, actually, before it was published. Pleasure to be associated with such an important paper, which provided a powerful critique of methodological nationalism, pointing to the consequences of being stuck in the national container for, in our analysis. Methodological nationalism has two costs for understanding the global setting. First, it blocks from view those features of the higher education landscape that aren't part of our, the master system we have in the back of our minds, our own system usually. And the bulk of the literature, of course, places that master system as the American or the British system, primarily the American. Secondly, um, methodological nationalism leads to underestimation of phenomena that cross borders um, or pertain to global systems, including such marginal phenomena as the world research system cross-border research from student mobility and collaboration and the global diffusion of the WCU template of the research university and neoliberal global competition um, in national systems. Jane Knight's definition of internationalisation is the most influential discussion in the literature and is widely adopted in institutional strategy. It speaks as much to professionals as it does to academic scholars. The features of this definition is its normative nature. It's linked to purpose. One problem here is that by moving away from neutral spatial terminology, the definition not only um, replaces explanation with a crusade to change practice, it moves away from scholarship in other social sciences, the more neutral and terminological understanding of international and global of other social sciences. A second problem for the proponents of the definition including Jane and Hans Witt, Phil Altback, is its ambiguity. The normative contents that they personally favour, a liberal multilateral international order in which the stronger and richer countries help the others to develop, and an educational and cultural exchange in which each should be learning something from the other, even if it's a bit lopsided with them more to learn from us than we have to learn from them, 
are not the the trouble is that those are not the main purposes of many who use the Jane Knight internationalisation definition. And this has led to a recurring series of articles from proponents of the normative definition who complain that internationalisation, as they understand it, is not working out in this benign way that they imagine. It's being hijacked by... Their definition is being used without any modification straight by people who are pursuing commercial agendas or soft power agendas or other kinds of lopsided, hierarchical, um, uh, dominant and... dominating and dominated views of higher education and science. They feel that internationalisation has lost its way and this is a recurring theme of articles in International Higher Education, the Journal of Studies in International uh, Education and other places. But more fundamentally, um, the definition is criticised by those outside the zone of the Anglo-American European world in which it was conceived. As it and, and, and where it's applied as a, as a measure of local programs and local um, practices. Now, international, international, between nations, ought to be about a relationship between two or more parties in which the qualities of all parties and their experience and their outcomes are equally significant. But with internationalisation defined as a property of one party, like human capital, uh, this individualisation, which we're so prone to in Western culture, um, defined as the property of one party but not the other, the effects on others, the other parties are being obscured. And where there's already a primary dominant, dominated, dominant, do- dominating relationship at work, that's going to be problematic. Um, and as both Rui Yang and Damtu Tafera point out, the effects of, on the other parties are being obscured by the use of this definition... Now, in that context, regardless of the good intentions of Jane Knight and Hans de Witt and others, the normative definition, by blanking out the agency of the other in the relationship, lends itself freely to neoliberal and neo-imperial projects. So it's not at all surprising that it's been broadly taken up by everyone. It's very comfortable. It's non-critical in the end, in its impact. Um, the third path I haven't taken is centre-periphery analysis. This is developed in world systems theory. Um, the anti-Eurocentric theory, which is nonetheless itself Eurocentric, um, and is used by Phil and Phil Olpok and others quite widely in influential analyses of global higher education. In world systems theory, higher education and science are dominated by North America and Western Europe, the global centre, especially by the United States. And, of course, we can find plenty of data, superficially at least, to support that view of the things. Now, the centre, the global centre, at the heart of the galaxy there, is surrounded by the semi-periphery, where the countries have some autonomy and some strength, but they're always really subordinated. They're always following, always behind. And then further out, of course, there's the countries on the periphery that are wholly dependent and determined by the centre. Their um, higher education development depends on being able to access opportunities for, post, for, 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 for doctoral and postdoc study in, in, in the central world and so on. Now, though, of course, there's movement in the semi-periphery, as people who use centre-periphery analysis will acknowledge that there are rising powers in the semi-periphery and so on, there's no end in sight for this simple, concentric global order. The centre is the centre, the semi-periphery is still the semi-periphery, no matter how much better you're doing inside it, and that's that. Now... 
Um, accordingly, centre periphery analysis struggles to understand the rise of new nations in higher education and science, or it just ignores it or downplays it. The fact that the top Chinese universities have reached the level of the top American universities in physical sciences STEM, or the Tsinghua in China and the two Singapore universities produce nearly as many high citation papers now as Cambridge, um, is hard to fit with centre-periphery theory. Um, for example, a 2019 study of the global research system by Ola Chinika and colleagues, which is framed explicitly throughout by centre-periphery theory, finds itself arguing that while the growth of science in East Asia has changed glo uh, global knowledge flows and could broaden inclusion in the global core, on the other hand, the um, tendency to de deconcentration is only slight. And Chinese science is said to be constrained by organisational and cultural factors, including the Confucian tradition's alleged failure to value collaborative behaviour. It's an interesting one in a collective culture. And critical thinking and the expression of personal opinion. So it looks like the party state and the Confucian system between them just repress the potential for ever breaking out of the semi-periphery and into the central core. The assumption seems to be that the highest level of creativity is only possible in the European-American core of the, of the world system for reasons of intrinsic cultural superiority. Well, good luck with that, I say. But nonetheless, it sits there as, as a predominant part of our, uh, of our thinking, doesn't it? OK. To move to conclusion, I'm not sure how I'm going with time. Um, what are the ways forward for the study of global higher education? Well, I can think of two. Um, first is to explore the role of higher education and knowledge exchange in developing global civil society beyond states. And I think that we have done little to identify the important role we're already playing in constituting forms of world community that extend beyond the nation state. And yet the conversations which we, which we develop and the institutional links that we establish on an ongoing basis are important building blocks of a global civil society which is, is not, extends way beyond, of course, higher education alone but where universities are central players. And that network of global cities, which I talked about before, is the sort of framework for much of that kind of activity. So, yes, it's elite in terms of socioeconomics, but then, you know, most of major new initiatives at global and national level are. Um, yes, the question of its democratisation and equalisation arises, and that should also be part of our analysis and part of, the, our, uh, of, of, of a... Um, of an investigative agenda. Um, but it seems to me that the question of global civil society and higher education is a central one, uh, and it's one which we should know a lot more about than we do. The second way forward is, to, is more challenging. It's to more effectively get to grips with diversity and difference in the global setting and to stop our universal reliance on our own inherited frameworks for thinking about not only what the global higher education system is, but what higher education and knowledge are and what human society might be. Um, the alternative, I think, is to remain trapped in a centre-periphery kind of framing of, of everything where Europe and North America and offshoot from Europe are always at the centre and it, nothing else really has, cuts, the same, uh, cuts the same ice, has the same weight in our thinking. So we need to get to grips with, with how others see it. 
Um, and here I think where it's very challenging because to do this effectively, we need to explore what Amartya Sen called multi-positionality. We need to start to look at the global environment as a composite of more than one way of seeing or more than one set of values or more, more than one set of practices. And I've started to try to do that with my colleagues, with my excellent doctoral student, Lily Yang, who's here, um, in relation to the differences and similarities between Anglo-American culture in relation to the university uh, and higher education system and the role of government in higher education and so on, and the Sinic or Chinese civilizational view. And that's only one possible multi-positional move that you can make. I think it's an important one because of the importance of those two traditions in human life at this point of time. But um, it's only one of many possible um, uh, arrangements of, uh, of, of, of permutations uh, that you can make when you talk about multi-positionality. But let me say that it's challenging because they are very different worldviews. And when you start to think about where higher education fits, it becomes even more interesting. The Western uh, tradition, with its, its the great division of powers, the inheritance from the Republican era of the 18th century, um, the era of the American and French revolutions, which established this idea of a limited state, created a space for civil society and a space for market which wasn't entirely within the limited, within the, within, within the, within the state, and also the separation of the, of the individual and family domain to some extent from the social realm more generally. Gotcha. Um, and that's so different, isn't it, to the Chinese way of thinking. This is a sort of more contemporary version, but the old Con Confucian concentric circles where the individual was nested in the family and that was nested in the society and the state have now been breaking out a bit with the individual becoming more important, the state also becoming stronger. But, and also in the Chinese tradition, this idea of Tang Xia, this idea of everything, the kind of global imagining, the, um, the ecological imagining, or is it an imagining of China and the borderlands, you know? It can be either seen as a hegemonic, a sort of Chinese version of centre periphery, or it can be seen as, as everything. There are two different traditions in, the, in China. But this is a different construct to that one. Um, and, and so when you start to think about this, you think about where does the university fit in each of these. It, it is it the Nordic uh, equation between the state and the civil society? Is it the American equation between the market and civil society? Where does, you know, where does higher education fit? And where does it fit here? It certainly seems to be inside the state, though, you know, wherever else it is. Um, when you start to think about those differences and try and, try and devise a position which might be common to both, then you have a challenge. But I think that's where it gets interesting. And Amartya Sen's essay I recommend is Kansas um, um, lecture, the University of Kansas lecture. It's a very interesting proposition, which he then reprinted in, in, in Rationality and Freedom. Um, where, he, where he begins to work on the problem of transpositional assessment. He doesn't really conclude, but I think that's quite a profitable line of investigation for us. Um, so, going a, a minute or two over time, um, many things are possible in the global environment that are not possible in, in local and national environments, or at least more difficult to achieve. Um, I think that there's... Scope for initiative and scope for agency, I've always been struck by how much people can do here, how, many, how much they can initiate and how many new things they can do by being mobile, by being reaching out, by working across borders, by travelling and doing things in another place and so on. Um, I think that the capacity to be globally mobile and globally agential and effective is very unevenly distributed 
And one of the issues we face is the need in this time when the pushback is, is very much there to, is to expand rather than contract the capacities of our students and our colleagues to be, to be global agents. Um, it's all about the capacity to act positively and proactively in the global setting and to, to make the best possible use of the many freedoms that it offers. Thank you.